0: We, we want to be a church that makes much of Jesus and much of what Jesus has done for us. We uh, haven't gathered here together today so that we can look at you and tell you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, to give you a couple more principles to live by, some self-help, some life hacks. Uh, we're not here to just give you tips on good living. Uh, we're not here to tell you that you can be better if you try harder. We're here to tell you what the gospel is. We're here to tell you what the good news is because we believe that when you come to understand this, Everything about your walk with God changes. Everything about how you relate to Him, everything about how you serve Him, everything about how you walk with God completely changes. When you begin to realize that God is not some angry, vengeful, unpredictable bully, because that's how a lot of people see God, is that He's just keeping score. He's this this taskmaster keeping score in heaven, trying to watch out for when you're going to trip up and, and, and punish you the moment that you do. We see God as this vengeful bully that's got something against humanity. And then we begin to see worship on a Sunday as some sort of superstitious insurance policy against his whims. Like God is going to be really mad if I don't go to church this Sunday. And so I'm just going to go and make sure that I'm insured against, his, against all his whims or his unpredictability. When we realize, though, that God is actually faithful and true, someone who he describes himself as he reveals himself to Moses, even in the Old Testament, he says, I'm slow to anger, I'm rich in kindness, abounding in mercy. When we realize that this is the God that we serve, a God who delights in his children and leads them in love and who did everything necessary to bring us rebels home, then it fundamentally changes the way we relate and trust in God. And this is really what we're passionate about as a church. And this is what the book of Romans goes to lengths to express. Paul goes, let me just set the record straight once and for all. Whatever you think you know about God, whatever you think God is expecting from you, whatever your thoughts about Christianity is, I'm going to very clearly and very precisely let you know this is the good news. This is the gospel of God's grace. This is what we believe in. This is how we're made right with God. And so last week we spoke a little bit about righteousness, which just means to be right with God. How can we as imperfect, flawed human beings who have sinned, who have messed up, who keep messing up and who will still mess up in the future, how do we get to walk with this righteous holy God? How do we get to have a relationship with Him, intimacy with our Father? How do we get to experience this when we are so aware of our own flaws and our own imperfections? And we said that normally there's two options that people go for, um, and and we put up two doors here, and we said the two doors that Paul says, hey, if there's two options that you're considering, it's probably one of these two. And the first door is the door of the gospel, the door of God's grace, the door of God uh, having done everything in order to make us right with Him. The second door is the door of morality. Which is honestly the door that most early Christians, young Christians, and, uh, and, and, and people outside of the church who don't know the gospel yet, they think that that's how you get made right with God. If you ask someone, how do you get to heaven? They say, just be a good person. They think that the gospel is about being good so that God can accept you. And so Paul says, just if you're wondering, if you think that this is the door that you're supposed to walk through, in other words, if you think that you're going to be right with God because of your moral standards or because of your ability to do good things or your good deeds, if you can weigh up your good deeds versus your your bad deeds and your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you can walk through that door. They they, they try and, and paint this picture as if it were possible for us to be perfectly good. And Paul then makes it very, very clear by saying that if you were thinking that you're going to be made right with God by walking through the door of morality or observance to the law or being a good person, let me help you out. Whenever I say that, I think about uh, what I do with with my boys sometimes when we're in the car, when they're crying for something. Sometimes they're crying like we're driving in the car and they're crying for yogurt. I'm like, I I physically do not have yogurt. I cannot produce yogurt in this moment of time. I cannot help you. There's nothing I can do. And they'll keep crying. They say, I want yogurt. I want yogurt. I want yogurt. And I'll turn around and I'll go, let me help you. And I'll get them to stop crying. And uh, normally Leo is behind me. I'll turn around and I'll go, hey, Leo, let me help you. Let me help you. Just look at me. Just look at me. He stops crying. I go, just look at me. Let me help you. No. Okay? (laughs) So... (laughs) And this is kind of what Paul is doing. He's saying, oh, you have the gospel of God's grace, the declaration of how people are made right with God without any of their own effort, completely by the merits of what Jesus did on the cross. And then you have this door of morality, being a good person, good deeds, working hard enough, observing the law, and you think you're gonna be made right with this one. Let me help you, let me help you. This is what Paul does, chapter two and three. Let me help you, let me help you. No, you're not gonna make it. You're not gonna become right with God because you're a good person. The gospel is not about being good or about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people becoming alive, right? That's what the message is really all about. And so Paul makes this very clear in what we covered in chapters 2 and 3 last week. Um, and he says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, no matter how uh, what you look like on the outside, no matter what sector of society you come from, no matter what your background is or your upbringing is or whatever, We're all sinners sold into slavery, all of us, and we need a Savior. And it's not going to come through our self-effort. So he says this in Romans 3, verse 28. He says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But then Paul says, for we hold. This is what we hold to. This is the message. This is what we believe. We hold to this hope that one is justified, which means just as if you've never sinned. Justified, made righteous, standing shamelessly before God by faith, apart from works of the law. Completely separate from your works, we are made right with God. This is the message, the scandalous message of the grace of God. This is what the gospel is. Let me tell you this. If you are preaching the gospel correctly, if I'm preaching the gospel correctly today, some people should be getting mad at me right now. If you preach the gospel correctly, it will always sound crazy to us because we are saying, surely, surely we need to do something. Surely we need to take some steps. Surely there's some things I must do that's my responsibility. And Paul goes, let me help you, let me help you. No, faith. Righteousness from faith apart from the law. Completely apart from works. Hey, this is, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And Paul's only just begun this argument. He's like, hang on. We're going to go into this. If you think this was just a once-off statement, it's just a little part of what I preach. No, this is it, baby. This is the whole thing. This is a whole deal. And I'm going to unravel this for you. I'm going to unpack it for you and show you how the gospel is not about us doing certain things. It's about us believing in what has already been done for us. Big difference. Two completely different roots and so we pick it up today in Romans chapter number four. By the way, if you've missed any of these mes- messages, we do upload them online. Uh, we've got a website, anchorjoburg.org, and we have a player in there, SoundCloud player. We also have a, a playlist on SoundCloud. If you, if you download the SoundCloud app and follow Anchor Church Joburg, um, we, we, every time we upload a new message, you'll get a notification. Um, and so that's a cool way to just stay on this journey with us. Um, but Paul continues to teach the church in Romans 4, and now he begins to unpack what a relationship with God really looks like. And he starts by looking at Abraham and David and even, even the father of, of the faith, even the, the father of the, of the Jewish nation, the father of Israel. And he begins, to, he begins right at the source of this whole uh, nation of Israel to show that the key to a relationship with God has always been based on grace. So even though they had the law in the Old Testament, Paul is about to barbecue a holy cow here right now. He's, he's about to show the people of Israel who have taken so much pride in their stance as God's people that being right with God was never dependent upon the law. It was always on the basis of faith. Even with Abraham and even with David and even with the patriarchs of the Old Testament. So let's pick it up, Romans chapter number four and verse one. If you have your Bibles here this morning, Romans four and verse one, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You can't boast before God about the things that you've done in your own strength. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him, or is counted, which means imputed, which means given, which means transferred or attributed as righteousness. To the one who works, it's not grace, you're just getting your due, but to the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, God counts righteousness to him, the righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning, and we're going to deal a little bit with these verses in Romans chapter number four. Let's, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we're so grateful just for your voice this morning. God, we know even as you said to Peter when he fell down before you in and, and, and you said, who do, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And your words were that it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed that to him, but the Spirit of God and, 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 and the Father in heaven who spoke to his heart. And so we're praying for the same thing today, God. We pray, don't let, don't let us be convinced by human reasonings and human understandings and, 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 and human theological doctrine, Lord God. But let us be, be caught up by your Spirit and revealed to our hearts, God. Everything that is true about the gospel, everything that is true about your love, everything that is true about your grace. We pray today, God, that you would speak to every heart, that you would unlock doors, and that you would cause the penny of the gospel to drop deep into our hearts this morning. We pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. Amen. So I know that in general, we as people have trust issues, right? you don't have to put up your hand, but we have trust issues. But our trust issues are, are quite, become quite intensified when you're putting coordinates into a GPS. Has anybody found their trust issues amplify in that moment? Because you get the coordinates or you'll get the address and you'll type it in and it'll say that it found the point and then you kind of go squinty eye and you're like, really? Are you, re-? and you kind of distrust whether your GPS or whether Google Maps or, or whatever other uh, map program or app you might use. You begin to distrust whether your gps is actually going to take you to the wrong place and it actually happened to me recently where i was driving and the place it was taking me to uh was next to the highway and i was on the highway and it's like you have reached your destination it's like well i can't just turn off here now can i you know and I was like, thanks a lot google maps um and so i was like where do you complain on this thing um so so i was uh uh, actually, yesterday, our church has a golf group. If you enjoy golf, we play golf once a month, and we've got a bunch of guys that go out and play. And so yesterday, um, I had one of these moments where I had some distrust in my, in my Google Maps on my phone, um, because the course that we played yesterday was out in Germiston. And, uh, and Germiston, although I hear it's a party, I hear it's a, it's a lovely area, I don't actually ever venture into those parts of Joburg often, right? And so I'm unfamiliar with this terrain, and, my, and I'm putting it into the GPS. How do I get to this, this golf course in Germiston? And, uh, and so I'm watching Google Maps very carefully as I'm driving along and as I'm getting to, um, towards Germiston. And at one point, all of the overhead signs clearly state that Germiston is the next off-ramp. I mean, it says Germiston, and it says take this off-ramp. And so I kind of get into that lane thinking that Google Maps is going to concur in a second. But Google Maps then specifically tells me that I should go straight. And straight, it just says N3 Durban. And so I'm thinking, wait a minute. I know I'm going to Germiston. The signs say Germiston. But should I trust Google Maps when it says straight? I wasn't sure if at this point, even Google was like, bro, you don't need to go to Germiston. Just go straight, just... Durban is way better. Just just skip this one, you know. Um, I wasn't sure if it was that or if, or if there was another route that I didn't know about. I couldn't see what was lying ahead, and I couldn't see if there would be another opportunity for me to take the right road. And so I'm in the turning lane, and, and I'm trying to decide, and I'm kind of, leaning over, and at the last minute, I decide, okay, I'll go with Google, and I end up having to do this evasive maneuver to not hit the concrete barrier that separates the off-ramp from the highway, right? Anybody ever done that? Like, last minute, you realize you're on the wrong road, and then you nearly, you know, kill yourself and a bunch of other people as well. Um, And so, kind of caught in this, do I go with this route, or do I stick with what Google's telling me, and do I stay on the highway? and, And... this is often what you'll hear from people when they talk about grace. That people will often tell you that, that grace is dangerous and you've gotta be careful how you preach grace and you've gotta make sure that you balance grace out. That you, that you consider uh, other options as well and, and that you've gotta balance grace out with works in order for it to be true grace. And it kind of leaves many Christians in the strange position where they're swerving their spiritual cause between grace and works. Like, is it grace? Wait, wait, wait. Am I gonna, am I gonna go with what I think or is, am I just gonna follow what the gospel says? And, and, and they're kind of swerving in between the two. Has anybody ever found that? Trying to balance out, where does, where's the middle road? Like, how do I balance out grace and works? Do we take the off-ramp of works or do we stay on the highway of grace? How do we, how do we balance those two out? But there's one thing that we cannot do. There's one thing that is absolutely not possible for us to do. It's impossible for us to do, unless you want to completely smash your spiritual life into that concrete barrier, is to choose a middle road. There is no middle road between grace and works. There's only a concrete barrier. There's only a divide. You have to choose one way or another. And so Paul in Scripture tells us not once, but over and over and over again. And all those who have truly studied Scripture since that time, since Paul wrote what he wrote, have over and over again reiterated that it's either all of grace or it's all of works. It's either door number one or it's door number two, but you cannot choose a middle road. There's no balancing out the grace of God with the law of man because one is God's righteousness, the other one is our own self-righteousness and the two are not compatible. The flesh is hostile towards God. And one of the biggest revelations in my life is when I realized that all the good things that I was doing was hostility towards God because I wasn't submitting to his righteousness. I was trying to conjure up my own through my good works. And so Paul Wants to show you that there's always only been one road to righteousness. There's always only ever been one route. There's no middle road between law and works. And I'll talk about works a little bit more uh, when we get to the end of this message. But he goes to Abraham. And Abraham is a sensitive subject. We know that Jesus has had some sensitive conversations with the Pharisees. Although Jesus wasn't so sensitive in those conversations uh, about, about Abraham. And so Paul basically goes, okay, so let's go to Abraham. You know Abraham, the father of our entire nation? Yes, even Abraham wasn't made right by the law. Even the father of of our nation wasn't made right according to the law. Like we read there, he says, for if Abraham, and I've got this up there, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, we, we can have a lot of good things that we can boast about. You, you can Instagram your perfect life. You can, you, you know, it's like if you feed a poor person, you don't Instagram it. Did it really happen, right? So people love to do good things, but they also love to be seen doing good things. And so, yes, we can boast about it if we're doing things that are good, but not before God. Because if we're doing them in our own strength, it's simply self-righteousness. That's why the scripture tells us that no flesh will ever boast, will ever be able to brag in the presence of God. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves good before God. So here's something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. It was, this righteousness was given. So Abraham is made right with God by his faith. By his faith. Faith means to trust your entire life, your entire future, your entire spirit to someone. It's a very, very deep form of of trust. And this is directly opposed to trusting in your own ability or following the law in yourself. So when you follow the law, when you say that you're going to be made right by your works, what you're saying is, I trust in myself and my own goodness. And when you say, I believe in the grace of God, what you're saying is, I trust in God. And that's why saying you trust in God and receiving grace is actually death to self because you're putting the flesh and all of its desire to stay alive to death. Your flesh will do anything to stay alive, including come to church, say your prayers, fast every now and again, give away things to the poor. No, 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 I'm good. Don't kill me. I'm good, I'm good. Have you ever seen when, when people get caught up with, with, when they get robbed or in movies, when somebody comes into a room with a gun, they go, no, no, I have three kids and, and I'm a good father and I, you know, I help out and it's kind of like we, we kind of the flesh does that. It's like, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. I'm, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. That's what the flesh does. But the flesh, our human sinful self can never be pleasing to God, can never be right with God. So he goes on to say, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, if you're working really hard, being good, going to church, saying your prayers, paying your taxes, in order to either be right or stay right with God, you're not receiving a gift. You're ultimately trying to earn a salary from God. And have you seen the difference in people who earn a salary? compared to people who get given a gift. The difference is, is really gratitude. Because a person who earns a salary goes, well, I, it's, I'm due this. Give it to me, God. And some people, when they get blessings from God, they go, well, it's because I was good. It's because I did what I was supposed to do, and then I got blessed, and so just give it to me, God. It's mine, it's due. But what Paul is saying is, then don't call it the gospel, and don't call it grace. Because you're just trying to earn it. When you receive something that you do not deserve, unmerited favor, a blessing that that God would justify, he says, the ungodly. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We couldn't have achieved it. We're not earning a salary, but we believe. He says, to the one who does not work but believes. Just notice for a moment that he contrasts work with belief. If you're working, and I'm going to bring this full circle to talk about the proper context of working, but if you're working for salvation, you're not believing for salvation. Those two are opposed. To the one who does not work, but believes in a God who justifies the ungodly. There's a contrast there. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We don't earn anything because of our works. So that doesn't mean that we don't do what God calls us to do. In fact, it means we're free to do what God calls us to do, but not to earn his love, not to earn our right standing with him. So to the one who believes that God justifies the ungodly, you're made right with God. And this is why Paul in chapters 2 and 3 started off by telling you, hey, guys, you're ungodly. (laughs) Because if you don't know that you're ungodly, you won't believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. Right? Like I always say, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and that's why he's my friend. Because I need him. But Paul isn't done. He's not just going to leave it at Abraham. He's like, okay, so that's Abraham. So we are justified apart from the works of the law hey, you remember Abraham, the father of the entire Jewish nation, the forefather of everything that God has ever done through the nation of Israel? Let me just quickly tell you, he was made right, not by the works of the law, but by faith. But I'm not going to stop there. Uh, Paul, is, is, he's on a roll here, and he goes, let me talk to you about David as well. David was the most iconic and most adored king of Israel who ruled Israel during its golden era, the golden era of the, the nation and the kingdom of, of Israel, King David arose, the one who, who defeated Goliath, the one who defeated the armies of Israel, the one who built out Jerusalem and, and, and funded the building of the temple and, and took all those strides towards Jew, uh, um, the, the Israel becoming a nation. He goes, even David, in Romans 4, verse 6 to 8, he says, just as David also speaks, he also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, which is imputed or given or attributed righteousness apart from works. He wrote about this. Hey, even David wrote about this. There's a blessing. It's, we're blessed when we are the ones to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, David writes in Psalm 32, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He will not count his sin. Paul quotes David here from Psalm 32. And he says, it is so blessed, which means a gift from God, to have your righteousness given to you as a gift. To have it imputed to your life. To be it attributed, it being attributed to you. And to have the sins that you've committed not be attributed to you. This is why today we live in an incredible, incredible time in the history of the world. This, we should thank God every day that we get to be alive during this time when God has charged the church with taking out the message of the gospel. This is why the gospel is the good news. This is what it is all about. This is what the message is. Christianity isn't about, hey, come, let me fix you, and, and let, me, let me modify your behavior, and let me get you to look like a Christian robot that goes around going, bless you, bless you, Jesus, you know, and, 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 and thank you, brother, and amen, and, and all those things. This is not about getting into some sort of a subculture that, that tells us uh, how we should live. This is about us coming to the point of recognition when we go, I am a sinner with no hope of saving or helping myself in any way, shape, or form. But I've come to a God who by His grace and wisdom and love and mercy has chosen to impute righteousness to me even though I don't deserve it and never could and take the sin's that I deserve to pay for myself in judgment and does not count them against me. This is the great exchange of what God came to do for us because of his love. This is the essence of the gospel, that God does not impute our sins to us. Instead, he takes our sins and he imputes them to Jesus on the cross. And then he takes Jesus' righteousness and imputes it to us. Isn't that incredible? Right now today, even if you have not done a single religious thing in your life, if this is your first time in church ever, even if you've done a million things that you wish you had never done, even when you knew you were sinning directly against God, today if you go, my faith is in the fact that Jesus died for me on the cross, in that instant, every single thing you've ever done gets imputed to Jesus. And all that you receive is the righteousness of God. You don't even just get the righteousness of God, you become the righteousness of God. It's who you are from that moment forward. And this is the greatest news anybody could ever tell you. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, We are considered, as soon as we believe, as though the works of Christ were our works this perfect life that Jesus lived as he adhered to the law point by point by point and was obedient to God even to the point of death on the cross. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, it's like the life that Jesus lived was actually the life that we lived. Can you imagine if you had lived a life as perfect as Jesus? How bold you would be before God? How close your intimacy with him would be? how well you would be able to walk with him and obey him and follow him and do all that he has created you to do. Well, the moment you put your faith in God, it's as if the life that Jesus lived is actually the life that you lived. Charles Spurgeon says, as if the works of Christ were our works, God looks upon us as though that perfect obedience of which I have just now spoken had been performed by ourselves. God considers us as though we were Christ." looks upon us as though his life had been our life and accepts, blesses, and rewards us as though all that he did had been done by us, his believing people. Just let that sink in for a moment. You know how often we disqualify ourselves from having a relationship with God? How often, I've, I've actually before, and maybe some of you have, have been like this as well, but sometimes I've prayed And there's something that I desperately needed or wanted in my life. And while praying, I'm going, it's good that I ask, but I know that God can't do this for me. Like I haven't even uttered the words yet and I've already decided that I'm not worthy of receiving whatever it is that I'm asking for. So God, can you please do this in my life? But yeah, I know that you can't really because I've lived, I haven't, you know, done what I'm supposed to do. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't, I haven't read the Bible enough. I haven't been good enough. I haven't given enough things away. I'm just, there's stuff going on. So, yeah, I can't. Yeah, okay, God, I want it, but I, yeah, okay. I give up while I'm praying. Anybody ever been there? Well, but what the gospel actually says is that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, there's no longer anything that hinders you from receiving all that God has for your life. That God blesses you that God works in your heart, that you have intimacy with God, that you're able to walk with God, that he rewards you as though you had lived a perfect life and did everything he expected of you. When God now looks at us in Christ, he no longer judges us according to our shortcomings, but blesses us according to the faithfulness of Jesus and how faithful Jesus was. And in this moment, we begin to experience the freedom of faith. And that's really what I'm talking about today, the freedom that comes from having faith, that boldness that arises. The Bible says the righteous, in the book of Proverbs it says, the righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one pursues. When, when, when you are just aware of your sinfulness all the time, when you're completely sin conscious, and some people live more with a sin consciousness than they live with a Christ consciousness, they're more aware of what they're not than what they actually are in Christ. And so they live with this, I'm not good enough, and I'm not, and there's condemnation, and there's shame, and there's fear, and there's anxiety, and there's worry, and there's, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, and I want to go to church, and I want to get involved, but I'm not good enough yet, and I've got to get better, and so you're fleeing, and no one's even chasing you. There's a constant, constant evasiveness. I'm not going to get involved with the things of God, because I'm not ready yet. I haven't fixed myself enough. But the righteous, and remember, righteousness is imputed, it's not earned. The righteous are bold as a lion. We boldly, the Bible says, approach the throne of God's grace in our time of need. Boldly. Why? Because we know who our Father is. We know our position as His children. We can go before Him for whatever we need, we can ask, we don't have to earn. And this was a huge change in my own life where I used to spend the first 20 minutes of every prayer that I prayed asking God to forgive me of everything so that I could actually get to the part that I wanted to get to where I was asking God for what I needed, right? It's so funny when you start asking God for forgiveness and there's nothing wrong with repenting and having a repentant heart. It's good. But I'd sit there and I'd go, oh Jesus, I I know... I haven't done enough this week and I know I should have been better and please forgive me for not doing this. Please forgive me for getting angry the other day and please forgive me for for being selfish in this moment and please forgive me for those words that I spoke and yeah, God, I'll, I'm really gonna try to do better, God, and, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll work harder and, and, um, and, and God, yeah, you know. And, and, and that's kind of how my prayer went like the whole time and then, and then I, I start to try and name every single thing I'd done wrong in that week but there's so many things. So I'm just like, I'm naming everything I can remember and then you get to the point where you can't remember anymore and you're like, God, just forgive me for the stuff I can't remember that I might have done, that I'm not sure if I did. You know, the things that I think I might have done wrong or maybe things I should have done that I shouldn't have done. You know, the sins of omission and the sins of commission and, 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 just, and, and things that I approved of that I shouldn't have. And you're just running through everything. And you're like, eventually you're like, okay, God, I have no confidence left, but if you can just help me out in this area, then that'd be great. <laughs> this is how our prayers go. Why? This doesn't sound like boldly approaching the throne of grace, does it? It says, we have confidence to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. My biggest need is my sinfulness. So when I am sinful, because I'm not looking to myself as the way into the the, the throne room of God, Jesus has now become the new and the living way. I walk through those doors, through the door of Christ, dressed in the robes of my righteousness that is mine through my faith in Christ, and I go, hey God, it's me, it's me again, I'm here. In fact, I get to a place in my life where I never leave the throne room, I'm just hanging out in there, playing around all the time. It's just I'm just living my life in the presence of God because it's not something I have to work to get into. You know why we called Anchor Church, Anchor Church? Because in the book of Hebrews, it speaks about this and it says that Jesus has now anchored us in the presence of God. And it says, this hope, not just hope, but this hope that we have in the gospel is an anchor of our soul. Your life is permanently fixed in the presence of God, regardless of your flaws and faults, because of what Jesus has done. Does that make sense this morning? So we get to experience freedom, the freedom of faith, the freedom to live your life, not taking yourself so seriously. Simply by faith, I'm righteous. And there's a freedom. Now I'm like, hey God, you love me even though I still mess up from time to time? Yeah, that's amazing. Hey God, I can ask of you when I need things and I don't have to be second guessing myself around every corner? Yes, you can. Hey God, I get to worship you wholeheartedly. Have any of you married people ever had an argument with your wife or your spouse just before arriving at church? And then you're trying to lift up holy hands. (laughs) Jesus. We struggle because we we feel the tension between who we're not and, and who God calls us to be. But when you know your righteousness in Christ, you worship freely. In fact, some of my most powerful moments of worship have been When I have just done something I didn't want to do and felt horrible about myself and felt ashamed about what I had done and wished I was better and I just start worshiping Jesus because I understand my access to his grace, my access to his presence, my access to his His love, my access to, to his throne room is not based on how good or bad I have been. Apart from works. Righteousness apart from works. And this is the freedom of faith. It's freedom from condemnation. It's freedom from shame. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from the ideas that God would just walk out on us, that he's just waiting to walk out on us the moment we mess up. And that boldness rises up. God is with me. He loves me. The righteousness of Jesus is mine. We are the righteousness of God. Not something we're trying to do, but something we've become. Can I just... Quickly, I'm, I'm taking a couple of rabbit trails here today, but, but just one more way that this manifests in our lives when, when you don't know the freedom of faith is how you think the devil can work in your life. The access that you think the devil has to your life if you don't understand the freedom of faith. When you don't understand the gospel, you think that my works open up doors to the devil to have carte blanche in my life. So everything becomes about closing doors. Close, close, close. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But if we are the righteousness of God by our faith in Christ Jesus and our works, past, present, and future have been dealt with on the cross, what access does the devil have? How can he possibly lay claim to the righteousness of God? The Old Testament says a curse without a cause shall not alight. It cannot land. It cannot take ground. Like those airplanes that try and land and then the wind's too strong and they're like, nope, no, abort, abort, and they like leave again. The only gap the devil has in our lives is when we don't believe in the righteousness that we have. And I used to be obsessed or ridden with with thoughts about what the devil was trying to do in my life. And And so I would pray, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to be confident in those prayers. But I'm like, God, I rebuke the devil and I bind him in this area and I bind him in that area. And I remember we had um, some neighbors and I was sure that there were demons over there. And I'd be like, and just put up a wall, just let the demons stay on that side, spiritually, you know, just keep them on that side. Bind the devil here, bind the devil there, bind the devil here. And I'm like, when I realized that faith is the shield that quenches every fiery dot of the enemy because righteousness comes by faith and then you have the breastplate of righteousness, that protect your life and your, and your organs, you begin to understand that we wield the sword of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. You begin to understand that there is nothing that the devil can bring against me that my righteousness and identity in Christ cannot quench. So, so I'm not devil-obsessed anymore. I'm not walking around going, I wonder if the devil's gonna... The devil can try as he might. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me tell you something. It produces freedom because now I go into my home. I used to anoint my car, anoint my house, anoint everything. Devil, you can't have these things because now I've put olive oil on it. Now that is the symbol that you cannot have it. Please respect this cross. Then I realized my faith is not in superstitious things, even though I know that they simply represent. The the heart of those things is to represent what our faith is. So there's no problem with anointing your things if that's what you want to do. But when I walk into my house, I go, this house belongs to God. Why? Because I belong to God and my family belongs to God. The car that I drive, I can buy it from a drug dealer. I don't have to pray over it. It's now righteous because it belongs to me. It's set aside for use by God because it belongs to me. And I am, not I do, I am the righteousness of God by my faith in Christ Jesus. So what happens is you become less focused on what the devil's trying to do in your life and you become more focused on what Jesus has already done in your life and is doing in your life. Freedom, freedom. You take yourself less seriously, you take Jesus more seriously. Charles Spurgeon continues and I read this, um, this essay of his last night and he was talking about righteousness, imputed righteousness and he says this. He says, let the fact that the Savior is Jehovah Strengthen your confidence. Be bold. Be very courageous. Face heaven and earth and hell with the challenge of the apostle. Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? Look back upon your past sins. Look upon your present infirmities and all your future errors. And while you weep the tears of repentance, let no fear of damnation blanch your cheek. You stand before God today, robed in your Savior's garments with his spotless vestments on, holy as the Holy One. Come on. The confidence that we have. Who shall lay anything? What charge shall be laid against God's elect? We look at all of our lives, our past sins, our present infirmities, all of our future errors. And even though we repent of them and we don't want to live in them, not for one moment do we fear damnation. Not for one moment do we think that God will reject us. I want to finish off this morning by talking about, because I've said a lot against works, and that is because righteousness can never come through works. It can never come through the law. It can never come through observance to the law. Not because the law is bad, but because we're bad. The law is good. We just can't keep it. That's the problem. The problem is with us, the law is holy. So where do works come in then? How do we speak about works as Christians? They come out of the fountain of righteousness. They come authentically out of this new found walk with God. We do all the things that the Bible calls us to do but they become a natural outflow of our position in Christ, our identity. In other words, you're living authentically uh, in, as, as, as an integral person, you know what it means to be integrated. It means that the things that you do are connected to who you are. You genuinely believe them, and so now you're no longer a disconnected person that's going, "I'm not good, but I'm trying to be good." You now made the righteousness of God, and so you live from that platform of righteousness. Does it make sense? That's why that's how we can have authentic works and authentic, faithful actions, acts of faith. They're the natural result of our newfound freedom. We're no longer doing things because we're trying to earn our way into freedom, but because we're walking in the freedom that we already have. Romans 4, 9 to 11, Paul says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now, circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the covenant, and it was the beginning of the law. Everybody had to, by law, be circumcised in the nation of Israel. So Paul quickly asks this question, so at what point did Abraham become righteous? Was Was it before he was circumcised, or was he only righteous after he was circumcised? He answers, he says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was just a sign. It was just the evidence of the fact that he had been made righteous. And what is significant about circumcision, even though, forgive me for becoming graphic about this in a little bit, is that it is the removal of flesh, the flesh which represents our sin nature. It's cut away. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, the flesh is cut away. So we're made righteous by faith, and then the sign of it is the cutting away of the flesh. It's the evidence of it. So how are we set free from sin? How can we obey God? How can we live righteous and holy lives? We do it as we walk in the righteousness that we have in Jesus. In other words, your works don't make you righteous, they just prove, they're just the evidence of the fact that you have been made righteous. Does that make sense? Let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's not say that, oh, if you do things, then you're right. No, you're right, and then you do things. That's why we tell people, come as you are. To Anchor Church, come as you are. All your sins, all your issues, all your baggage, bring it, come. Come as you are. Because the first thing you've got to understand is who you are in Christ, what your righteousness is, and then the rest gets dealt with. You don't deal with your things and then come to Jesus. Because you can't. Does that make sense this morning? So works don't make us righteous. They're the evidence that we've already been made righteous. Finally, Romans 4 verse 16 says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise, the promise of what God would do, would rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. To the, the promise of Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. It wasn't actually about the law. It was about grace and faith not only to the adherent of the law, to the, those that are, are the natural children of Israel, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 20, he says, no unbelief made Abraham waver according, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was Counted to him as righteousness, but the words "it was counted to him" were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Imputed to him, not for Abraham's sake alone, but to ours also. It will be counted; it will be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham gets imputed to you, to you in your life who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why was Abraham made righteous? Not because of his circumcision, not because of his adherence to the law, but because he believed that when God made a promise, that he would fulfill his promise. And why are we made righteous? Because we believe that when God promised that he would send his son to die for the sins of the whole world, so that we who are sinners might in him be raised from death to life, to live a life that is now free of condemnation. When we believe that God made good on his promise, the same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham is imputed to our lives also, and we become the righteousness of God. So you're driving on this spiritual highway, and you're so tempted to take the off-ramp of works but when we trust God and you take the highway of his grace you find that God knew the way all along and that from the beginning he has mapped out this road for righteousness we cannot live by both faith and the works of the law as Martin Luther said it's grace alone faith alone Christ alone And you know what? I'm a more committed Christian now than I have ever been in my entire life. Not because I'm better. Just simply because I believe in who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Let me me pray for us this morning.